Okay, so we are continuing our series uh, this morning looking at learning from the life of David. Uh, and this morning we're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, and we are going to be looking at... Oh, am I going to be able to do this? Let's try it. Yeah! Okay. Uh, relationships. Uh, there's not many laughs this morning, just to say. Just to give you a warning up front. Uh, and also... Um, Really, like, even if I'd had 45 minutes this morning, it wouldn't be enough time to do justice to all the stuff I want to look at uh, from this passage. So if it's okay, I'm going to kind of look at um, four things that I think are worthy of unpacking that need a little bit more time. Uh, and I'll kind of just give you a starter uh, on those. Oh. Oh, I've gone all the way to the end. <laughs> Spoilers. Oh, okay, right. We've got four things to explain or explore or unpack, and probably what I'll do is I'll just give you like a, a short starter on each of those things. And I wouldn't normally ask this because I don't like homework myself, but in this case, I genuinely would appreciate it. I think all of these are worthy of a bit more time and exploration and reflection. And if you get a chance, maybe later today or later in the week, if there's even just one of them um, that you could pick and spend maybe another 15, 20 minutes, half an hour digging into a bit further, I think all of them um, merit that further exploration because there's some quite big and complicated stuff going on in this story. Okay, so uh, the first one uh, is that we need to unpack a little bit is just the actual backstory to what's happening here. So I'm going to read a bit from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, and then that'll bring us up to speed with uh, the context for the, the verses that we're looking at. So, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, uh, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. I feel like there's quite a pointed bit of narration there. At the time when kings go off to war, that is the done thing. The kings go off to war. The kings do. King David remained in Jerusalem. He did not go off to war with the troops. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, the high up roof of the palace overlooking the rest of the city. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, literally to fetch her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So already, he's not gone off to war. He's watched a woman washing. She's married to someone else. He's got seven, eight wives and hundreds of concubines of his own. He sends for this woman. She gets brought to him. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Joab, you remember, in charge of the army. He sent the army earlier. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. I see, and then a little bit later. So David eventually this is, sends Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, uh, off 
with a message. Okay, so he gets Uriah sent to him, and then he sends him away with a letter for Joab. In the letter, he wrote, and remember, he gives this letter to Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. In the letter, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell, and moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So David, in order to try and somehow uh, cover up or cleanse his consciousness from uh, this thing that he's done, gets the husband of the person he's just slept with sent to the front line and killed. He basically murders him, just not even with his own hands. And Joab sent David back a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving this king, the account, the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? So Joab is worried that David is going to be cross that they've done bad warring because too many men have died. And Joab says, if he asks you this, say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So the reassurance for David is it's all okay because the man he wanted murdered has indeed been killed. So that's kind of the immediate backstory to the passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, and I think you can see David did quite a lot of things wrong there. Uh, it's quite a lot of truly appalling behavior. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't even need unpacking, does it? Just so many things wrong with that and so many people being killed and mistreated and abused. And so the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said... There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So Nathan tells this story about a guy who's got loads of stuff and a guy who's only got one tiny thing, and the guy takes the one thing that the guy with nothing has got, even though he's already got everything. And David burned with anger against this man in the story and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he, had, he did such a thing and had no pity. So David is furious that somebody would be uh, so callous and so pitiless and so cruel to take the one thing that somebody with almost nothing had when they themselves already had so much stuff. Then Nathan said to David, this is one of my favorite lines in the Bible, 
And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. The man that you're so angry with in that story is you. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. <laughs> Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So that's a pretty grim story all round, right? There's very little uh, happy or... Um, positive to look for there. David behaves atrociously. People suffer hugely. And then this cruel punishment is inflicted on his whole household and his wives and his future son all suffer too. I told you there weren't very many laughs. That's basically the summary of the backstory. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And so we come to this story and we're supposed to be looking at this idea of relationships. Uh, and what can we learn about relationships from this dark and terrible story? Uh, and even as we look at all the problems and all the terrible things David does here, I think there's a problem with asking that question. And the problem is that we're trying to look at this story to learn about relationships and I'm not sure that there even are any relationships in this story to look at. I really can't make this thing work. There we go. Um, see, a relationship is a thing that happens between two people. And I think if you look at the way that this... Uh, if you look at the text and the backstory, if you look further into the backstory, one of the things I would urge you to look further into, um, uh, yeah, a relationship is a thing between two people, and I'm not sure that there are uh, any relationships happening in that sense, because the wives don't qualify in the worldview of David and Nathan as people. There might be a little bit of a relationship between Uriah and Bathsheba. That kind of happens off stage and we don't hear about it. All we get is this picture of the, the guy with the lamb and there seems to be some fondness there. Maybe they had a relationship between two people. But for David and for Nathan and for lots of the ways that this stuff is set out, it really looks like the wives don't count as people. 
Uh, and so if you go back and look through all the different bits of the text, uh, so this is back from earlier in 1 Samuel, um, Abigail went with David's messengers and became his wife. So if you didn't know, if you think this is a story about David cheating on his wife, my question to you is, which wife was he cheating on? Because David actually had at least seven different wives already, and who knows how many concubines beside. And you can go back and see that that's not just because he really, really loved so many different people. <laughs> um, the notion of what a wife was was very different in this set up in this story. David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel and they both were his wives, but Saul had given his daughter Michal, David's wife as well, to Paltier. So there's a lot of giving of wives here. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. You might have noticed when I was reading the story, there's a lot of that language of taking and giving. And so this isn't a kind of uh, romance. Often these Marriages are political conveniences. Um, what else have we got here? Uh, David sent messengers to get Bathsheba. She came to him and he slept with her. This isn't some um, romantic story of seduction. Bathsheba doesn't have a lot of choice in this matter. If the king sends for you and you're brought to his palace, you go. And she basically has to sleep with him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife. Um, and even in that bit that Nathan uh, the kind of dressing down that Nathan gives him I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your, your own I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you if you didn't know the language and you were coming to this text completely cold, I think you would be forgiven for not knowing that a wife was a person. You would think it was some kind of, it was sort of the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of like a, uh, an expensive car or something. It, it, a wife in these things are like um, uh, a fancy bit of property that get traded between people. Um, and the reason David's got so many wives, as I said, is because there's sort of some politics going on there and it's how you forge relationships with your neighboring kingdoms. And so it's really hard to look at this story and say, what are we going to learn about relationships? Because relationships are between people and really this story looks an awful lot like a relationship between a person and some of his property. And even that story is couched in terms that is far more about theft about taking stuff from somebody than it is about being emotionally unfair to another person or something. And so it's a difficult one. Uh, but, so what, what lessons can we learn? What can we say about relationships from uh, this story, if we're saying that a relationship is between people and that really this is a relationship between a person and his property. Actually, the Bible's got a very simple, straightforward uh, rule for relationships between people, between humans. Uh, there's kind of two prongs to it. One is in the law, right back from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. 
That is the kind of basis of the biblical worldview of all relationships. When you're talking about how does the Bible see how people should relate to each other, that's the second greatest commandment after love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the other founding basis of how the Bible views relationships between people is that all people are created in the image of God. That's right back from the very first chapter of Genesis. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So these are the two big pillars of the biblical outlook on relationships. And these are both there before David, long before David. David would know these scriptures. David knows that this is the basis of the worldview. And yet I don't think you can look at that story and say that he is behaving in either of those ways in anywhere in that story. He is not looking on these people as if they are created in the image of God. And he is not loving his neighbor as himself. I mean, there is some kind of, I mean, he's loving his neighbor in a way. Her house is next door. But he is not treating Bathsheba as a neighbor in the sense that the Bible means it. And he is not loving Bathsheba in the sense that the Bible means it. And he is seeing these wives as property and not as people. And for me, I think that is the root of David's problem and if we want to learn something about relationships from this story that would be where I start that the basis of the biblical worldview on relationships is love your neighbor as yourself and everyone is created in the image of God and David knows that and somehow he still doesn't do it so how does David in his own mind get away with being so far from uh, the commands of the God that he claims to love. He's the psalmist who writes, I run in the path of your commands. You've set my heart free. How can he end up so far from these commands in his treatment of these people? Well, that's the trick, isn't it? Is that he's failing to see them as people. These wives have become property and they're no longer people and when they're no longer seen as people they're no longer in the image of God and then they're no longer your neighbor and then they don't need to be loved as yourself and he has effectively excluded these people from the biblical outlook on relationships by turning them into property by dehumanizing them and that is the fourth thing I want to just spend a little bit of time on to finish is how that is a challenge to us and this really we could spend all day on this uh, and I really would um, urge you to spend some time um, looking at this stuff it is not hard to find examples so you might say okay that's David's problem there and I see that but that's a long time ago that is ancient history and yes it is terrible the dehumanization of women in particular in that story uh, is awful and I get that but we don't do that now that was then this is 2019 we know so much better that doesn't happen anymore we're not in danger in 2019 of dehumanizing whole chunks of the population and then excluding them from the biblical mandate to love them as ourself but the sad fact is that that absolutely does still happen now in loads of ways way more than we've got time to unpack and those ways go from the really drastic to the really mundane but they're all in the same category of 
dehumanizing people and thereby excluding them from that biblical mandate to love them as our neighbor and as ourself. So sometimes that happens in words. Um, so here's, here's just some examples of how that sort of spectrum can work. So you might have, uh, so at the top here, here's, here's some words. <laughs> These ones are all about women. Uh, Ted Bundy, the serial killer, described women as merchandise or accessories. And talk about dehumanizing people, taking them out of the realm of being people and into the realm of being property. There is the most terrible kind of example you could ever want of that. And again, you might say to me, yeah, but obviously I don't do that. That's a, that's a massive outlier. That's a seriously evil and twisted person. But then you come down a bit. Here's a phrase you weren't probably expecting to see on a slide this morning. Uh, penis homes. That is actually a phrase that was used by a former leader of a megachurch in America. He was posting on a forum and he described women in those terms and in lots of other equally problematic terms that literally turned them into objects that talked about women um, as, as, yeah, that's, what that's their function. And it takes them, in the same way as David, out of the realm of being people, out of the realm of being created in the image of God, out of the realm of being our neighbors to be loved as ourselves, and turns them into stuff, into property, into a role. And you might say, yeah, but that, I'm never going to use that phrase. That's really drastic. I mean, it's not, maybe it's not quite serial killer levels, but still, that's way away from anything I might ever say. But then you come down maybe a bit closer to home. How often... Do we hear people talking about women as snares or stumbling blocks or other language that, that it does the same thing? It might not have the same immediate drastic consequences, but it does the same thing of taking a person and turning them into a problem or an object. And even some things that you might think are positive, nice things to say about somebody. She's my jewel, she's my treasure. They still run the same risk, they're still on the same spectrum of turning a person made in the image of God and dehumanizing them and turning them into a thing. And as soon as we do that, not only have we veered far off from the biblical outlook on how relationships should work, but we run the risk of getting into all the same sorts of trouble uh, that David did or anybody else on this list. Um, so th this is, a, a, I thought, a really helpful quote this is from I think her name's Laura Bates the founder of the everyday sexism project that kind of sums this up when I started the everyday sexism project people asked why I included incidents of rape and violence alongside testimonies of street harassment or media sexism how can you put these terrible things next to these really small insignificant things the answer is simple they demonstrate a spectrum women aren't killed in a bubble they're killed in a world that disenfranchises them, positions them as other, and disadvantages them. They're killed in a society that sends a message clearly and repeatedly that they are sexual objects for men's gratification and possession. The cultural elements that help to create these messages aren't the cause of violence against women, but they are the context in which it happens. They help perpetrators to see women as objects. They frame violence against women as titillating, funny, or excusable. They help us to blame victims when they come forward. They hamper justice. 
When we fail to join the dots, the dots between the big drastic stuff and the small everyday stuff, women are dying. This sounds like an exaggeration, but it isn't. And that to me is, it goes right to the heart of the problem. Dehumanization is always the forerunner to the most terrible acts, whether it is rape or genocide or war. You will always see beforehand, it's, it's really hard. I was listening to a talk about this, and the guy was saying it's really hard for a human being to look into another human being's eyes and then shoot them or stab them. And in order to get over the psychological barrier that is hardwired into us to do that, we have to dehumanize the person first. And it's, it's so dangerous, and it does start with the small stuff. And it's David's failure in this story, is before we look at anything else, he has failed to see people as humans and as neighbors and as made in the image of God. And every time it happens anywhere in the world, it is really, really dangerous. You can look at it, it happens in our language around um, immigration or uh, foreigners sometimes. So again, like right up the top, you see before the Holocaust happens, you get language of Jews being vermin in Nazi Germany. Before the genocide in Rwanda happens, you get groups talked about as being cockroaches. But then even today in Trump's America, you get language about Mexicans infesting the border, or we hear in our political discourse about swarms of people. And then when you want to get cross with the politicians who say that, maybe this is the more day-to-day -day example, we sometimes talk, I've seen people talking about people like Trump as a pig, or we talked about Theresa May as a robot, and those might sound silly and tiny by comparison, but it's the same problem. It's dehumanizing the person. It's taking them away from somebody made in the image of God to be loved as a neighbor, and turning them into an object, or an animal, or a thing, and it's always, always dangerous. We do it in so many other ways as well. Gosh, I really don't have time to look through them all. Um, let me just give you headlines on two other ways we do it. We do it sometimes in the way that we group people, when we stop treating them as individual people and put them into groupings. I was talking to a friend the other day. So in like the 19th century in America, after the abolition of slavery, they had to decide what to do with all these newly freed people and did they get a vote or not. And so they came up with a compromise where they said, I mean, they're not, they don't count as full people, but we can't give them nothing, so we'll, we'll make them three-fifths of a human. <laughs> and they came up with this thing called the three-fifths rule, where a freed slave's vote counted as three-fifths of a vote compared to everybody else. They literally quantified how much of a person a person was. And you might say, well, that's ancient history, and we would never do that now. But then I was talking the other day to a friend of mine, and she was saying that she still remembered being moved from the first school in her state to move from a segregated school to a mixed-race school in the 60s, in the 1960s. And so you say, well, maybe we still talk about how oh, that's decades ago, but it still happens. Did you see, I mean, just the other day, the, 
the Home Office were doing a, a campaign targeting knife crime that they put into fried chicken shops. And if you want me to explain why there's a racist grouping undertone underneath all that, I can come and do it for you afterwards. But if you think it doesn't happen and that there isn't this thread between the atrocities of the past and the small everyday stuff of today, I'm telling you there absolutely is. And every time dehumanization happens and we put people into groups, doesn't matter what it is, if you call them chavs or we write them off as toffs or if it's leavers versus remainers, anything where we stop people being individuals and turn them into just one of their group, just the wives, just the army, just the soldiers to be killed, every time we do it, it's really, really dangerous. Because it goes away from the biblical foundation of all relationships, which is all people are made in the image of God and to be loved as a neighbour. And sometimes we do it not through our things that we do say or our actions that we do or the way that we actively do something. Sometimes we do it by our neglect and by our silence uh, and by the ways that we exclude people and the things that we fail to do. And again, that can go from really huge, drastic things. It can be somebody having their citizenship not recognized. Or it can be something as small as making it difficult for somebody in a wheelchair to get into your building. The reason that people make a fuss about that stuff is because it dehumanizes people. And dehumanizing people, as we see in the story of David, is always really dangerous. And so I just want to finish um, really with urging us to look out for this stuff and to be better at it. And that means, yeah, being really, really careful about not doing it ourselves, taking every uh, step we can to avoid dehumanizing people. Look out for it in our language. Look out for it in the way that we're talking about people in groups, in our generalizations. Look out for it in the things that we might be the people we might be ignoring or overlooking. But also more than that, I feel like the church in particular has a calling to actively go and do this stuff well. <laughs> the foundation of the biblical worldview on relationships is all people are made in the image of God and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And it breaks my heart that for so many people, the church is known on the basis of the people that it discounts and it excludes and it rules out and it says are not fully human. When we should be the exact opposite. We should be the people where when somebody is discounted or excluded or overlooked by the world, we should be the ones saying they are made in the image of God. They bear the image of God. They are fully human. They are my neighbor. And it is my honor to love and serve them as myself. And it does, there's so many more examples that we could have given. It happens all the time. It is happening around you today. There are people being dehumanized. And it is our job to show that they are human, that they are made in the image of God, that they are our neighbor, and that they are loved. So let's just finish with Jesus's instruction to do exactly that. It is no coincidence that he says these are the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Not just like it because the phrases are similar. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor is like loving God because your neighbor is made in the image of God. David managed to dehumanize 50% of the entire population. And he dehumanized them. He forgot they were made in the image of God. He forgot they were neighbors that he had to love. We mustn't make the same mistake. That's the lesson, the relationship lesson we've got to learn from David. We should be the people telling those that the world dehumanizes, that they are the image of God and they are loved. Let's pray.